Bug Jargal by Victor Hugo, Chapter 28 At length, an escort of Negro soldiers very fairly equipped arrived. The Negro, whose property I appeared to be, unfastened me from the oak to which I was bound and handed me over to the chief of the squad, receiving in exchange a large bag which he opened upon the spot. It was full of piastres. As he knelt upon the grass, slowly counting them, the soldiers led me away. I examined their equipments with curiosity. They wore a uniform of coarse cloth, reddish-brown and yellow, cut after the Spanish style. A sort of Castilian Montera, ornamented with a large red cockade, the Spanish, hid their woolly hair. Instead of a cartridge box, they had a species of game bag slung at their sides. Their arms were a heavy musket, a saber, and a dagger. I afterwards learned that these men formed the special bodyguard of Biasu. After a circuitous route through the rows of ajupas, which were scattered all over the camp, we came to a cave which nature had hollowed out in one of those masses of rock by which the meadow was surrounded. A large curtain of some material from the looms of Tibet, which the Negroes called Kachmir, and which is remarkable less for the brilliancy of its coloring than for the softness of its material and its variegated designs, concealed the interior of the cavern from the vulgar gaze. The entrance was guarded by a double line of negroes, dressed like those who had escorted me hither. After the countersign had been exchanged with the sentries, who marched backwards and forwards before the cave, the commander of the escort raised the Kachmir curtain, announced me, and then let it drop behind me. A copper lamp with five lights hung by a chain from the roof, casting a flickering light upon the damp walls of this cave, into which daylight never entered. Between the ranks of mulatto soldiers, I perceived a colored man sitting upon a large block of mahogany, which was partially covered with a carpet made of parrot's feathers. This man belonged to the Sicatras tribe, which is only distinguished from the Negroes in a small degree, often imperceptible. His dress was ridiculous. A splendid silk girdle, from which hung a cross of St. Louis, held up a pair of blue trousers of coarse cloth, whilst a waistcoat of white linen, too short to reach to the girdle, completed his costume. He wore high boots, a round hat with a red cockade, and epaulets, one of gold with silver stars, like those worn by brigadiers, whilst the other was of a yellow worsted. Two copper stars, which seemed to have been taken from a pair of spurs, had been fixed upon it, evidently to render it more worthy of its resplendent companion. These epaulets were only kept in place by transverse cords, hanging from either side of the chief's breast. A saber and a pair of richly chased pistols lay on the feather carpet by his side. Behind the throne, Silent and immovable were two children dressed in the costume of slaves, bearing large fans of peacock feathers. These two young slaves were white. Two squares of crimson velvet, which seemed to have belonged to some church pew, marked two places to the right and left of the mahogany block. One of these places, that on the right, was occupied by the obi, who had rescued me from the frenzy of the griot. He was seated, his legs crossed under him, holding in his right hand his wand, immovable as a porcelain idol in a Chinese pagoda. However, through the holes in his veil, 
I could see his flashing eyes fixed steadfastly on me. Upon each side of the general were trophies of flags, banners, and pennons of all kinds. Among them I noticed the white flag with the fleur-de-lis, the tricolor flag, and the flag of Spain. The others were covered with fancy devices. I also perceived a large standard, entirely black. At the end of the grotto, above the chief's head, another object arrested my attention. It was the portrait of the mulatto Auger, who had been broken on the wheel the year previous at Cap for the crime of rebellion, with his lieutenant Jean-Baptiste Chavon and twenty other blacks or mulattoes. In this painting, Auger, the son of a butcher at Cap, was represented as he addressed to sit for his picture, in the uniform of a lieutenant colonel with the cross of St. Louis and the Order of Merit of the Lion, which he had purchased from the Prince of Limburg, upon his breast. The Negro general into whose presence I had been introduced was of medium figure. His ignoble face showed a strange mixture of cunning and cruelty. He made me approach and looked at me for some time in silence. At last, he sneered like a hyena. "'I am Biasu,' said he. I listened for the name, but I could not hear it from his mouth in the midst of this ferocious laugh without an inward trembling. My face remained calm and proud. I made no reply. "'Well,' continued he, in very bad French, "'have they already impaled you that you are unable to bend your spine before Jean Biasu, generalissimo of this conquered land?' and brigadier of the armies of Su Majestad Catolica, his most Catholic majesty. The tactics of the rebel chiefs were to make believe they were sometimes for the king of France, sometimes for the revolution, and sometimes for the king of Spain. I crossed my arms upon my chest and looked him firmly in the face. He again sneered. This seemed to be a habit with him. Oho! You seem to me a courageous man— Listen to what I am going to say. Are you a Creole? No, I replied. I am French. My assurance made him smile. He continued, sneering. So much the better. I see by your uniform that you are an officer. How old are you? Twenty. When were you twenty? To this question, which aroused in me all the recollection of my misery, I remained absorbed in my thoughts a moment. He repeated it imperiously. I replied, The day on which your friend Leogri was hung. Anger contracted his face. His sneer was prolonged. He continued, however. It is twenty-three days since Leogri was executed, said he. Frenchman, when you meet him this evening, you may tell him from me that you lived twenty-four days longer than he did. I will spare you for today. I wish you to tell him of the liberty that his brethren have gained, and what you have seen at the headquarters of General Jean Biasu, brigadier, and what is the authority of this generalissimo over the subjects of the king. It was under this title that Jean-Francois, who called himself Grand Admiral of France, and his comrade Biasu designated their hordes of rebel negroes and mulattoes. Then he ordered me to sit down in one corner between two of his guards, and motioning with his hand to some of his men, wearing the uniform of aide-de-camp, said, Let the drums be sounded, 
that all the army may assemble around your general to pass in review. And you, your reverence, he added, turning to the obi, put on your priestly vestments and perform for our army the holy sacrament of the mass. The obi rose, bowed profoundly before Biasu, and whispered some words to which the chief interrupted in a loud voice. Do you say that you have no altar? Is that astonishing in these mountains? But never mind, since the good Lord has no need of a magnificent temple for his worship, or an altar ornamented with gold lace. Gideon and Joshua adored him before masses of rock. Let us do as they did, good father. All that is required is that the hearts should be true. You have no altar. Ah, well, could you not make one of that great chest of sugar which we took day before yesterday from Dubusian's house? This suggestion of Biasu was promptly carried into execution. In an instant, the interior of the cave was arranged for a burlesque of the divine ceremony. A tabernacle and picks stolen from the parish church of Acule, the very church in which my nuptials with Marie had received heaven's blessing so soon followed by misfortune, were promptly produced, and the stolen chest of sugar was speedily made into an altar and covered with a white cloth, through which, however, these words could be plainly perceived. Du Boussillon et compagnie, pour Nantes. When the sacred vessels had been placed on the cloth, the obi perceived that the crucifix was wanting. He drew his cross-handled dagger and placed it between the communion cup and the monstrance in front of the tabernacle. Then, without removing his cap or veil, he threw the cape which had been stolen from the priest of Acule over his shoulders and bare chest, opened the missal with its silver clasps from which the prayers had been read on my ill-fated marriage day, and turning towards Biasu, whose seat was a few paces from the altar, announced to him, with a profound bow, that all was ready. On a sign from the general, the cashmere curtains were drawn aside, and the insurgent army was seen drawn up in close column before the entrance to the grotto. Biasu removed his round hat and knelt before the altar. "'On your knees!' he cried in a loud voice. "'On your knees!' repeated the commander of each battalion. The beating of drums was heard. All the insurgents fell upon their knees. I alone refused to move, disgusted at this vile profanation about to be enacted under my very eyes. But the two powerful mulattoes who guarded me pulled my seat from under me and pressed heavily upon my shoulders so that I fell on my knees like the others, compelled to pay a semblance of respect to this parody of a religious ceremony. The obi performed his duties with affected solemnity, whilst Biasu's two white pages officiated as deacon and subdeacon. The insurgents, prostrated before the altar, assisted at the ceremony with the greatest enthusiasm, the general setting the example. At the moment of the exaltation of the host, the obi, raising in his hands the consecrated vessel, exclaimed in his Creole jargon, You see, your good God, I am showing him to you. The white men killed him. Kill all the whites! Because Toussaint Louverture had been in the habit of so addressing the Negroes in that manner after having communion. At these words, pronounced in a loud voice, the tones of which had something in them familiar to my ear, 
all the rebels uttered a loud shout. They clashed their weapons together. Had it not been for Biasu's influence, that hour would have been my last. I understand to what excess of courage and activity men could be driven who used the dagger for a cross, and upon whose mind the most trivial event makes a deep and profound impression.' 